my pleasure to invite you to turn to Psalm 72 for our scripture reading and preaching today. Throughout this year, we've been considering a theme of learning to love the Psalms, and in that theme, there is an opportunity for us each month to have a new Psalm of the Month, and I'm preaching on that Psalm rather than just giving a Psalm meditation. Listen as I read Psalm 72. This is God's word. A Psalm of Solomon. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish, an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth, on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon and those of the city shall flourish like the grass of the field. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Psalm 72 addresses amazingly pertinent and pressing questions that our culture is asking today. How should our government care for the poor and needy? How should they defend the oppressed? How should they respond to cries for social justice? These questions are much on our minds. They're the subject of our, our news media day in and day out over this last year. Today, we're going to consider Psalm 72 because as Christians, we actually do have a deep concern for these matters. And it's a concern that comes through in Psalm 72, and I'd like to address it in the context of what the Bible says about our King, Jesus Christ, 
and the benefits that flow from him to us, not only spiritually, but also that flow from him to our culture, to our country, to our nation and government itself. Last month, we sang Psalm 2. There we understood that Jesus is God's anointed king, and I called you, therefore, to look to him for redemption and to accept his rule. What Psalm 72 does is it expands that theme by showing us the benefits that come from Christ's reign, a reign that is forever and ever. And I want to build on that today, inviting you to see how God is at work as as king and to apply it to you individually and also to principles for uh, for godly government, ones that we pray for for our country. So on your bulletin, you'll see that theme summarized, that Jesus reigns as king forever and ever. Therefore, embrace the benefits of his kingdom. By way of intro, I just want to remind you of the historical setting here so that you could understand uh, the reference to Solomon and David and to the nation of Israel and then to see it then applied to us. So the original composition is called the Psalm of Solomon. And at the very end, there's this tagline about the the prayers of David are at an end. And, And there's some reasons for that that I won't go into this morning. What it means is that the author is, is, is likely David and that he's writing about and praying for his son Solomon, who would be king after him. In this historical setting, then, I, you, you should understand that there is, is an application there as David is praying for his own son. You can see that in verse 1 as he prayers, prays for, for justice and righteousness to be given to to his physical son, Solomon. And this would be in fulfillment in the larger setting of God's covenant that he made with David. You might remember that all throughout the Old Testament, there's this gradual unveiling of God's covenant of grace that shows in more specificity and more expansive nature what God was going to do. And what God said to David is that the promised Messiah, the anointed one, would come through him. Now we know that the promised Messiah is not only a son of Abraham, uh, or going further back, a son of of Eve and and Adam, but now a son of Abraham and a son of David. And not only that, that he would be a king, a king that would reign forever and ever. And this, this psalm speaks of Solomon then in fulfillment of that but only partial fulfillment. Because like his father, Solomon failed in many ways. And the scripture doesn't pull any punches about that. But the effect of the promise and a a partial fulfillment in Solomon is to foreshadow the king that would come, that would fulfill God's promise perfectly. And that king is Jesus Christ. And there's also this effect of of stirring us up in us a, a longing for that promised king, Jesus Christ. That's the historical setting. And you can see how David speaks to his own context, but also speaks to his own context relying on the promise of God and reaching forward by faith 
as both king and prophet of God to say there is someone else that we have in mind and our hope is ultimately in that Jesus Christ. So that leads us then to think of the benefits of Christ's realm that come through, benefits of Christ's reign that come through in this chapter of Psalms. I'm going to spend a a fairly long amount of time on this first benefit, and uh, uh, not because the others aren't important, but because it will help us as we answer one of these benefits in in a fuller fashion that you can then take the other benefits and begin to apply them to yourself and then also our prayers for the government. So in verses one through four, one of the benefits and the first benefit that is described is justice and righteousness that are a benefit of Christ's kingdom and of his reign. And here I like to imagine David writing this about his son and praying this for his son, Solomon. I imagine him reflecting on the promises that God had given to him to send a perfect king. And and by faith, David can say, I know I'm not that king. Maybe the promise will be fulfilled in my own son. And, And if not, I know that the promise will come. And so David, by faith, prays these promises for his physical son but also looks beyond him to Jesus Christ. And what does he pray for? He prays for for the blessing and happiness that comes to the king and the nation when the government rules in righteousness. Now think of how that fits in, in the whole character of the book of Psalms. The very first psalm that I preached on, Psalm 1, talks about Oh, happy is the man who does not walk in the way of sinners or stand in the presence of the ungodly or sit in the seat of scorners. And that that theme of blessing or happiness that comes by faith in the God of the Bible is really set as the theme of all of the Psalms. And here, David says that's true for the nation. It's true when, when the king is that blessed man who's not influenced by ungodliness, but is is righteous and just, and that that righteousness and justice comes from God himself. Give him your judgments. Give him your righteousness, and he will judge with righteousness and your poor with justice. At this point, I want to... I want to pause before I elaborate on that justice and righteous more, or to pause in the context of this idea of learning to love the Psalms and and explain a bit about the poetry that is being used here. I've made the point before that, that poetry is different than prose, right? Prose is a novel, a story that is being told, or it is a, a newspaper reporting on facts. Poetry is completely different, right? So poetry will use rhythm and rhyme to not only convey an idea by by facts or the words that are used, but also it communicates it through through the, the movement of those words. 
And there's a drawing in of our emotions by the poetry that takes place in the book of Psalms. And you may be... You may be one that says, I don't get poetry, and that's all right. You don't need to figure it out, so to speak. Poetry is there for you to, in a sense, partake in and to, to enjoy and to be moved by the words and by the, by the motion of those words and the rhythm and rhyme that are made use of and of other devices that happen. And... David here uses a different device. He uses a very common device in the Psalms that is something of a parallelism or, or a coupling of lines so that it says one thing on line one and then it, it says almost the same thing but uses different words or, or plays with them just a little bit to elaborate on it. So let me show you that in verses one and two. Excuse me, in verse 1. So line 1 says, give the king your judgments. Line 2 says, give him your righteousness. Then line 3 says, he will judge with righteousness. And line 4, he will judge with justice. So the pattern or the, com the comparing that's going on is we have justice and righteousness. And then righteousness and justice that are part of this pairing of lines that is going forward and there's there there's there's moving uh, a movement in that just by the by the words that are used but there's also this uh, uh, this aspect of of pairing that is really important what david is praying is may, may the king receive judgment or justice and righteousness from you o god and then may he judge in that very same righteousness and justice that he has received from you. And those are powerfully joined together to show the source is coming from God and then exercised by the king. And it also intimately and necessarily weds together righteousness and justice. They both go together. They they cannot be torn apart. And that's, that makes sense, doesn't it? Justice must be informed by righteousness, right? And righteousness must act justly. If you try to rip them apart, what you have is a government that rules, but rules without any righteousness. And that just becomes anarchy. There's no rhyme or reason for the judgment that is exercised. It just becomes my way or the highway. At the same time, righteousness that fails to act fails to be righteous in the end. But God's king is just and righteous. And so is godly government. That presses us from the psalm and, and points us forward to Jesus, who is the one who, who perfectly demonstrates this and who perfectly exercises this. The scriptures tell us that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to perfectly obey all that God had commanded for mankind to do. 
He came in fulfillment of that. He is also one who has been given authority, all authority, in heaven and on earth. And he has been given the authority to reign and to rule, and one day he will come again in judgment and will judge the living and the dead. This is the the perfect and righteous reign of Jesus Christ. And the benefits that come from that are justice and righteousness. And this does have implications for government. Judgment, justice, law, and order must be informed by something. They must be. I've already alluded to this. Justice enacts a code of ethic, a code of life, whether it's spoken or unspoken. And if it isn't informed by biblical righteousness, it will just become the tool of the state to enforce whatever the philosophy of the day is, whichever philosophy holds the most influence at the time. And that sounds frighteningly familiar, doesn't it? When a government does not hold to the absolute truths of God's law, then what is enacted becomes the whim of those who hold the most influence today. Frighteningly familiar and is not the character of Christ's reign and rule, and neither is it the character of a government that that grasp that they are to rule under God's authority. Going on in verses 3 and 4, this is, is under the idea of justice and righteousness. It's also connected to the peace that comes. Christ, our righteous king, also brings peace. The mountains will bring peace to the people, and the little hills by righteousness. Well, there's poetry again. You know, peace doesn't come from the mountains, literally, Right? You don't have to, you can't go out to Colorado and dig around in the ground to try to find peace. If uh, you might find some gold, but you won't find any peace. <laughs> but poetry says that, uh, that there is peace to be found somewhere. And in the Bibles, the mountains are often used as a symbol of a of, of a place of God's dwelling. And that's something in accommodation to the smallness of our minds. You might think of Psalm 121, unto the hills I lift my eyes, whence comes my aid? Well, it's not the hills that give us aid, and it's not the mountains that bring us peace. It's the God who made the hills and the mountains. And he is the one who dispenses his peace by righteousness. And there's righteousness again. Peace will come from God by righteousness. And then the psalm unpacks what this righteousness looks like. It looks like rulers who uphold justice for the poor. Rulers who, who, who stand for the oppressed and even, even destroy the oppressor. The one who hears and delivers the needy. Here's where, uh, where the psalm is so pertinent. It, it seems like it's ripped from the headlines, doesn't it? We long 
for care given to the poor and the needy. We long for, uh, for deliverance for those who are oppressed. There is a need here to recognize where that comes from. It must come from righteousness. It must come from God. Without that, some have latched onto these phrases and made them into a theology that really doesn't fit even the context, let alone the rest of the the greater story of Scripture. They make out a new theology that they call liberation theology or a social gospel. They say that the Bible speaks about the crushing of the oppressor, the deliverance of the poor, and so they make that the only story of the Bible. But remember that the benefits of Christ's kingdom are are necessarily woven in with righteousness, that justice can't be ripped away from a biblical expression of who God is and what he is like, what he is what he has commanded. That makes these verses much more than what liberation theology espouses. You see, liberation theology's theology is too small. And his liberation is too small. They have narrowed it down into something that that fails to grasp the greater vision that that the Bible has for care for the poor and the needy and the oppressed. It must come from from God. It must come from his his own nature and the passion of God to hear the cry of those who are oppressed and to act to deliver them. That means that as a government comes to understand the character of God and the law of God, that they too will necessarily begin to express God's character in a fallen world where there is sin and oppression and distress that needs to be addressed. This is is the vision for Christ's reign, which has a spiritual nature, but then also influences this world because it expresses the very nature of God. This provides us a template to pray for our own government and to to labor ourselves. We pray for godly government that, that does care for poor and needy and oppression. We pray for government that proposes laws that have in mind equity between those of different races and those of different economics, that it doesn't give room for those who have more money to exploit those who have less. We pray for laws that give a voice to those who have none. And more locally, we can think of how God has moved us to to pray and to be involved in our own community, to have our ear open and our eye out for the needy and for those who are oppressed. It's led us to be involved in Stillwater Life Services, that gives a voice to the unborn, that gives resources to those who are poor and needy and who think they are trapped by their situation and the only option is an abortion. 
Some of you have become involved with uh, our daily bread, which is another expression of addressing a, a physical need in our community and to offer bread and water and to do so with humility and in the name of Jesus Christ. And while this provides a template and a prayer for our own governments, it must find its ultimate meaning in Jesus Christ. And what a glorious meaning it is. The kingdom of Christ will bless its people. It will, it must. This is the promise of God that we cling to and pray for, that Christ will be transforming and addressing not only the spiritual needs of those who are lost and in darkness, but then also uh, through that addressing the physical needs that flow out of our living in a sinful world. He will bless the earth's people with justice, righteousness, and peace. That's something that we pray for and long for and labor for. And it's fitting to pray for today, especially as we, as we celebrate the, the 4th of July, as we remember that we have a certain amount of freedom in our country for which we can thank God. And we can pray for more, that our country would be transformed. Coming to know by Christ the blessings of justice and righteousness. That's the first blessing, and I have, uh, I have several more. As I said, I, I, wanted, I was going to really try to develop this first one. And I'm going to be briefer on these next and invite you to do what I just did on this first one in a similar way on these other blessings. I'll give you some hints along the way, but, but think of these next blessings and apply them to yourself spiritually and then in our prayers and application for, for godly government. The second blessing in verses 5 through 7, I'm calling genuine faith and worship. And, and here I'll apologize for being brief because this one deserves even more. Books have been written on this. The relationship between government and religion is one that we in our country have said is separate never to meet or influence the other. And we're actually seeing a lot of mixing up of that right now as the government is trying to address the church and, and uh, in ungodly ways. Well, we believe that scripture says that, that the government and the church are separate institutions, but, but not absolutely separated. They're both underneath the rule of Jesus Christ. And they both have their, their sphere of sovereignty and exercise their authority in those positions so that the church can speak to the state about justice and righteousness and to have a voice for those oppressed. And the governments can promote godliness and true religion. And it comes through in this, this passage. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure. And here it's speaking of those who are brought into that kingdom of Christ. The poor and needy that, that 
are relieved by the rule of Christ come to worship him, come to fear him. The expression of, of the fear of God is the response that comes to Christ's gracious and beneficial invitation of the gospel. He invites a response, a response of faith and worship. And verse 5 calls it the fear of God. And I hope when I use that term that, that it will trigger something in you here. That, uh, that's an incredibly rich concept. Books have been written on that topic as well, the fear of God. R.C. Sproul defines the fear of God as the kind of love and respect that a child has for his parents, which is different from the kind of fear that a prisoner has of his jailer. That's very different, isn't it? Think about what a prisoner, how a prisoner fears the jailer. You, you, you tremble under the, uh, the, the threat of a jailer, and especially if that jailer has, uh, is arbitrary and is, is vicious and ruling over you. But God is not your jailer. God is your redeemer. He is, is, the, is your, your king who is there to, to rule and defend you and to set you free. And that invites a response and a response of love and respect that could be under that heading of the fear of God. And not only that, but in response to such love and respect, verses 6 and 7 describe how the king shall then come down like rain that waters the earth so that the righteous flourish and there will be an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Really rich poetry here. Just uh, meditate on, on the rain coming down and the blessings and the abundance of peace. Uh, roll it around in your mind in the, in the days to come. There are word pictures of this rich and flourishing relationship that blesses us that come from the benefits of Christ's kingdom. But notice that this begins, this blessedness and happiness begins and ends with Christ. You enter into this blessedness by the fear of the Lord, by a relationship to Jesus Christ. You express this relationship. You express your faith in worship. It begins and ends with Christ, and we long for such, of a, such peace. We long for such happiness, and it comes through Jesus. And note here the application to godly government. The kings and governors can and even should promote this happiness, this true religion. It, it comes as an application from verse 6. The king's, a king's reign and his blessing brings righteousness so that the people of God flourish. Now, that comes ultimately in Jesus Christ, but this is also applied to our governments. And it's right for the kings of this earth and the governments of this earth to, to bless the church so that there would be a flourishing of, of God's people and the institution of the church. And in this way, we look to Jesus, the Prince of Peace, 
to be at work in our lives spiritually, bringing us peace with God, but also to be at work in, in the institutions of our world, and specifically a reformation for our own government to bring about a blessing of genuine faith and worship, looking to Jesus. What well, leads very naturally to the next blessing, the reformation of worldwide governments. Verses 8 through 11 continue to describe the, the reign and the realm of Jesus Christ as one that reaches to the ends of the earth. You see, it's not just a little localized drop in the bucket of history. Rather, Christ does and will receive honor and power and glory and dominion from every race and language and tribe and tongue. When I hear that and those, uh, the praise that Jesus receives from the book of Revelation, I think of the great and true ethnic di diversity that is represented in the church. It's represented because of Christ's righteous realm. He is calling us all to bow before Jesus Christ. That's the spiritual application uh, that the blessing of, uh, of Christ brings reformation to us, brings spiritual life to us. But it's more than that because Christ's influence also shapes the institutions of the world. And David mentions not only people, he mentions people that are low, nomads and high, kings, uh, to have this idea of, of the diversity of people and different nations that are described. But he mentions specifically the kings of those nations and the tribute that is brought by them to Jesus Christ. And so it mentions the kings of Tarshish and of the islands. Those were nation states that would bring their tribute to Christ. The kings of Sheba and Seba, uh, countries that were in the, the Middle East and in Africa, they come, they, they come to Christ. In the language of Psalm 2, they come and they kiss the Son, paying homage to him. This has in view that not only the people around the world coming to Christ, but in addition to that, the institutions, the governments, being transformed and reformed by Jesus Christ. And we long for that for our own country. We long for our country to bow before Jesus Christ. We long for, it, for there to be general revival from the ground up. But we can also pray for revival from the top down, that the leaders of our country would be converted by Jesus Christ and that they would lead in righteousness and that they would lead us and that the nations of the world would also be transformed in this way. And our confidence is that in time, God will do this because of the kingdom of Christ. He has set his son to reign and he shall reign forever and ever. Two more benefits, verses 12 through 15, I'm, uh, I'll call salvation. They seem to be referring back to uh, uh, the, the theme of social justice and concern for the poor and needy. 
but I want you to, to hear how the language is now charged with, with spiritual significance. And here it's right for us to say, this is a specific application to the conversion of people to Jesus Christ. Christ the King delivers you when you cry. He spares the poor and needy. He will save your souls. He will redeem your life from oppression and violence. And precious shall their blood be in his sight. As I read that, I kind of underlined those words of redemption and salvation of your souls. The kingdom of Christ does have benefits to, to this life here and now, but as part of a, of a larger parallelism or coupling, the case of the poor and needy comes up again here, only with the influence about the spiritual need of those who are in bondage to sin and Satan and habits of that sinful life that are delivered by salvation through Jesus Christ. This is a promise that clearly rests on the gospel, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We live now and we will live forever in God's presence because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. The final uh, benefit that I'll call your attention to is from verses 16 and 17 that I'll call fruitful abundance. We often sing this psalm as a missionary psalm, and for good reason. I hope you've already caught some hints to that, that, uh, that the effects of Christ's reign is bringing people to himself. And not just that drop in the bucket, as I described, but rather a great and numerous crowd of people from around the world are brought to pay homage to Jesus Christ by the gospel. And in verses 16 and 17, it describes the effects of, of the gospel. It, it describes why we do missions, because Jesus is at work. And the work that he is doing will bear fruit in the salvation of souls. And the fruit will be as, as this field that is full of grain. Hashtag poetry again here. <laughs> There's a salvation of souls that is described as, as a wheat field that's ready for harvest. You can see those even in the, in the fields around Stillwaters. You drive further out into the country, you'll find those fields of wheat and and the beauty of, of seeing these huge acres upon acres of land that are ready for harvest. You can see the wind blowing through them because head is so full of grain that it, that it bends and sways by that wind. This is the kingdom of Jesus Christ and why we would sing this as a mission psalm. Because Christ has as a, a rich and bountiful harvest, a harvest that is not just not just contained to our little backyard garden. We we have some wheat. It's about it's about a space like this. <laughs> uh, well, that doesn't cut it. Uh, <laughs> it's a huge field that is ready to be harvested. It's, it, it, it reaches up to the mountains where normally wheat doesn't grow. 
and it's described as as the the stately trees of Lebanon. And so with that that poetry again, David speaks of the harvest of souls that we pray for and that we labor for, that we sing for and and work for. This motivates us because it's a benefit of Christ's kingdom. It doesn't uh, depend upon whether we say the words right or whether our effort is perfect. It depends on Christ. It's a benefit of his kingdom. And so he asks us and invites us to pray for laborers in the harvest. And he sends out laborers. He sends out us. So we go in faith and labor in this abundant harvest that is Christ's. The outline on the back, you'll see that verses 18 and 19 close with a doxology, and I won't develop that today. I, I hope to come to that in a future sermon. Uh, it's an outburst of praise. That's what a doxology is. And I'll just close by saying, uh, I, I hope that you will take this psalm and even that outburst of praise uh, for now just to know and experience how right it is to lift up your soul, to lift up your voice, to say, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory forever. Amen and amen. Jesus reigns forever and ever. Oh, Lord God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our king, and for his, his righteous reign. We pray, O Lord, that we would be blessed in that spiritually through the gospel, that you would also, by that gospel and by the righteousness of Christ, also bless our country and our government. Lord, we are grieved by the ways in which we as a country have uh, have oppressed and have not cared for those who are poor and have not been a voice for those who have no voice. Oh, God, forgive us individually and as a country for your King Jesus Christ does reign and we ought to serve him. We pray, oh God, that you would bring that about in time in our own country and may you give us boldness to labor locally as we have opportunity. We pray these things in faith in the name of Jesus Christ, our King and Savior. Amen. So let's sing it, Psalm 72e. Uh, uh, This will be our psalm of the month, Uh, a prayer for Christ, a prayer that expresses his realm, and a prayer for, for our country as well and the nations of the earth. Let's stand and sing Psalm 72e.